Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's writing both timely and timeless. Find a friendly barbarian? Don't think about that star, and join us on our journey through the light fantastic and the complete discography. In this edition of the Complete Discography, we approach The Light Fantastic, the second of the Discworld series. It was published on June 2nd, 1986, and only saw a first run of 1,034 copies. But first, let's reintroduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Anna. You can find me on Twitter at at the underscore M-I-A-N-A-A-I. And for tonight... I am only really into this whole star cult thing because of the free food. Hi, I'm Justin. I can be found at at Justin Hunter, and I could really use my liniment. I'm Aaron, the fourth great spell of the Octavo tonight. Uh, I can be found at UrizenXVII on Twitter, or um, also right now currently managing the the uh, podcast account. Justin wants to change that, but we'll see. Give me the password, you coward. Let me drag all of us. Hi, I'm Minna. I can be found at at MinaMinar. And tonight, I am swearing at the great computer in the sky and turning off the stone circle and hoping when I turn it back on again, it'll work. God, what a mood. So tonight we're tackling the second book in the epic series of novels by Terry Pratchett, The Light Fantastic, in which we find, we pick up again with, um, with our friends Rincewind and Two Flower, uh, and they go on some more adventures, and the world gets very close to ending. I think that epic is actually a good way of, like, describing it. it like, there, there's definitely a couple, like, tinges of, like, oh, epic ap- apocalyptic fantasy. Yeah, definitely. He almost ends the world several times. And the universe a couple times. Uh, So this is just the Buffy thing of what is the plural of apocalypse? Pretty much. Yeah, we get the apocalypse. But they're flavored differently. Wait, 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 what? Oh, we'll get there. Don't worry. Fear. In my initial character summary, I forgot to mention our other favorite character, the luggage who is also on this adventure with us. How dare you. <laughs> I know. How dare I? The luggage is a good boy. Or thing. It's a good boy. The luggage is a very good, slightly malevolent entity. Force of nature. Very good guard. It's a very good guard suitcase. It's a goose, right? Oh God, it's a goose. <laughs> it is yes. the goose. Hopefully when this podcast releases in three months, that joke will still be relevant. Oh god, what one would hope. Untitled luggage. I hope that the the Oh my god. This is the only this is the only acceptable variant I I will play. I would as well. uh, Everyone is John is everyone is luggage. We're just all one of the innumerable legs. That's a that's a Patreon goal right there. Our non-existent Patreon. Well, you know. <laughs> Watch us play the untitled luggage game. Although, I will say, I would play everyone as Rincewind if everybody who's playing is a spell that's trying to get said by him. You know? Oh my god. That's not bad. Oh gosh. Should I take that as a cue to do the synopsis? Yeah, sure. Okay. Take us away. So in this book, we start out, and Rincewind has suddenly stopped falling off the edge of the world because the universe is doing something very strange. And we spend a lot of time with the Wizards of Unseen University trying to figure out just what is going on. And then we catch up with Rincewind, Two Flower, and the Luggage in a forest with talking trees. And they have various adventures and meet 
a barbarian named Cohen, who is apparently replete with references to Conan the Barbarian. They just kind of wander around getting into trouble for a while while the wizards have dispatched wizards to try and catch Rincewind because they have learned that there is a coming apocalypse unless they can get all eight spells set. This is a problem. Sorry, all eight spells in the... What is this? In the octavo? Uh, octavo, yeah. They have to get all eight great spells set. The problem is Rincewind is carrying one of them in his head, so they can't say it unless they have him there. Or kill him and absorb the spell themselves. So... Wizard's trying to get Rincewind, Rincewind, Two Flower, and the luggage, just kind of bumbling all over the place. Uh, I don't remember how they meet Cohen. I'll be real here, but they do meet Cohen. They also meet they also meet uh, some kind of mercenary who's trying to capture them for the wizards, named Herena. They also meet a very important character uh, in a role that is much closer to what he question mark. Uh, is in the rest of the series. Uh, they actually visit... Well, they do encounter right. death. Well, not only do they encounter death, but they visit death's house. That's right. Okay, so they do meet... I don't... Do they meet death before or after Bethan? They meet him okay, after so Bethan. They do end up in their flight from the wizard's... That's right. There's a broomstick. Sorry. <laughs> this, right. this two flower, is... <laughs> two flower gets poisoned, and is almost dead. Well, uh, and Rincewind that... goes astral traveling. <laughs> before that, uh, when they're trying to escape the wizards, they end up at a stone circle in the sky because reasons, and they save a virgin sacrifice, who's not real happy about that, and her name is Bethan, and. So we have Cohen, Bethan, Rincewind, Two Flower, Luggage is in and out. And then, yes, Two Flower does get poisoned somehow, and then Rincewind just kind of casually follows him into death. He takes some magic mushrooms. Yeah. There's a lot of magic mushrooms in this one. Anyway, they do meet Death, who is very deathy and playing cards with the other four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the other three horsemen of the apocalypse, which I thought was funny, uh, because Two Flower is teaching them bridge when Rincewind shows up, because of course he is. <laughs> Excuse me, it's called Weir. No, that's translation error. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they get out of Death an effect in Rincewind stories is very tough to follow to, to well to remember you're just things happen and they keep happening <laughs> and eventually you end up back in Ankhmore Pork in the middle of an apocalypse which and with cultists basically running the city because it's Ankhmore Pork and there's a disaster of course a cult has sprung up and everyone's in it and there's a lot of fighting in the... Oh my god. How do you describe what happens in Ankhmore Pork? <laughs> they go shopping. <laughs> they go shopping. Uh, which, of course, every D&D player knows is always a time sink. Uh, I, 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 they don't really go shopping. They more commit thievery. I would say they get stuck And leave money in... there. Some ungodly cross between a TARDIS and a tourist trinket shop, which they can't get out of for a little bit, and they travel across a couple of universes before getting back to their own. And I think it's in fact the shop where Two Flower got the luggage. It's. I don't think it's the shop. I think it's a shop of that sort. Right. Because there are multiple. Because this man has cursed multiple people to be running these shops forever and never close get out of the shop and I know Rincewind has decided to go to Unseen University but I don't remember why uh to well that is where that is where all the the spells are gathered yeah I guess he oh yeah yeah by this point he knows about having to read all the spells cool okay so Rincewind actually decides to take heroic action on purpose and gets them into Unseen University via of course the way the students sneak in and out because he went there um he ends up 
free actually deliberately doing magic that is not the spell he does do the spell in the city which then he's just drunk on power and also generally drunk seeming for a while anyway he gets them into unseen university does deliberate magic to get seven of the eight top wizards out of a vault in which they have been locked where the octava would usually be because the eighth top wizard has locked them in there and taken the octavo for himself and gone i assume to try and not just read them all but have them all in his head which is a bad idea and more deliberate heroics follow from rincewind and he goes up and i think eventually confronts him on purpose yeah anyway there's an epic showdown in some kind of extra-dimensional gladiator arena. I'm really unsure what happened here. <laughs> but he fights a large bug, which is also this top wizard, I think. No? Was it the top wizard? Okay, somebody's going to have to explain what happened here, because I was really, really unclear here <laughs> what was happening. He fights a bug in an arena and kills the bug. Something happens. He He wins somehow because this man is even weedier than he is and that's not the end it's of really it it's really just a nerd slap fight <laughs> huh yeah it's, it's really a nerd slap a nerd. fight <laughs> anyway this is not over because the spells have still haven't been read they have returned back to the book because the person who tried to hold them all in his head which didn't work and was really fucking horrifying is now dead so now he has to read them out loud and he mostly does it but he's kind of bad at it so there's something mispronounced and they spend some time bickering about pronunciation of words in some kind of ancient runes and eventually the spell does get said and i think that's this basically it red... <coughs> yeah the, the horrible red star that has been like how did i forget the horrible red star <laughs> throughout the entire book there's this horrible red star coming towards them which is the reason that they're all concerned about this apocalypse it's it's really really menacing and like there's some excellent like menacing description around it anyway the star gets there the spells are red and the turtles babies hatch is the star another turtle? It's an egg. It's an egg. Oh, the star's an egg. Okay, I didn't know where the egg came from. I am not going to read my audiobook next time, I think, because I a lot of the metaphysical stuff was like, what's happening? <laughs> it sort of it sort of all brushes past your brain. Well, and I'm usually quite good at like gathering info from the audiobook from audiobooks, but I just didn't a lot of it kind of like was suddenly, oh, wait, what's happening now? What was that? <laughs> and then I didn't double check in the text. To be fair, I got a little bit of that feeling from reading the book still. See, I don't mind that yeah. feeling. I'm just really bad at it with audio mediums. This is why I can't listen to Welcome to Night Vale. You tune out for five seconds and you don't know what's happening anymore. Val. The great Atuin finally has a baby. The baby hatches and floats off into space. And I assume the great Atuin leaves the magic light space where it has gone to hatch the baby. Continuing on into the cosmos. Mm -hmm. I do like that the great Atuin does seem to just be a sea turtle. Pretty much. And yeah, this, this book, like the color of magic is not the most coherent. I think the plot holds together better than color of magic, which straight up is the series of vignettes, but you're, you're right in that a lot of things happen and the connections between them are kind of loose. To be fair, I think that works perfectly well for like the kind of story that it is. It's just really hard to summarize later. She's like, wait, what happened first? 
Yeah. Oh my god, there's no chapters in this. No wonder I can't structure it. Well, none of them none of them have chapters actually. None of them have chapters? Wow. Yeah. Oh. I see I've read them all in audiobook, so I didn't pay attention to, at all to whether or not there was chapters. I think the only ones that have chapters are maybe the kids books. Hmm. Um, and the color of magic. The rest just are a unbroken narrative. I did really enjoy this book. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I think that Terry had the end goal of resolving, you know, the stuff that he that he set up in in Color of Magic, which was, you know, what is a tuan. Uh, and I think that everything else just sort of happened incidentally in, in the service of getting everybody to the end goal in this book. I mean, he establishes a lot of stuff that is he uses, yeah, that he uses to a great extent later in the series. But I think that overall, the point of this book was to get was to get to the end of to the business end of a tune. So yeah, that's our our long wandering summary of As it were. Uh, of the plot. Um, no, nah, no worries. Um, so one of the new characters who actually sticks around, unlike some of the the barbarians from the previous book, uh, is uh, Cohen, uh, also known later on as uh, Genghis Cohen. In the plot of Light Fantastic, he's an 87-year-old barbarian hero uh, who is constantly troubled by a bad back, sore feet, and severely diminished dental capacity. Um, Until later. Uh, He appears to have two broad powers, an iron-bound charisma. Uh, As Rincewin said, once they've been around him for a while, people start seeing the world the way he does, big and simple, and they want to be a part of it. Uh, and he also seems to have incredible skill in not dying. Um, when he's asked, as Minna noted, he's obviously a reference to Conan the Barbarian. He's asked the the classic question, what is best in life? Uh, his response is not, in fact, the lamentation of women and etc. Uh, his response is... I, I, I'm sorry. We, we need to, we need to actually do the correct quote. It is to see your enemies driven before you, to hear the lamentations of their women. Fair enough. Or other spousal partners. Cohen, on the other hand, says hot water, good dentistry, and soft lavatory paper. So I, I guess I sort of envision him as almost having a um, Sean Connery. Yeah. Can I just say, good dentistry. I forgot that he said that, and I just assumed he didn't know what dentistry was. So, okay, okay. So this is this is the point where I think my differences are because partly because his accent is, or his his speech impediment due to having no teeth for most of this book is written phonetically because eighties fantasy author gonna eighties fantasy author. Uh, go Buckwild Terry. Go write that phonetic <laughs> accent. You and Chris Claremont could could really jam on this. Um, but um, I had just imagined him as like a prospector. <laughs> yeah, the one who like whistles a little bit. Yeah, and just oh, there's good dentistry, <laughs> hot water, and shuffle lavatory paper. It's frankly, it was James D'Amato's spit from campaign, or even almost like Professor Farnsworth. Like, good news, everybody! I'm trying to remember what the voice was in the audiobook because that's what all the voices ended up being that for me. So he's he's sort of the resident muscle in most of this uh, story, uh, except when his back is acting up. Which is often. And I also like that his his fighting style is very much the fighting style of somebody who has been alive and fighting for a very long time. Like, he fights efficiently, and he fights dirty. Oh, yeah. You you win fights. You don't win them honorably. He buckles swashes very well. 
When another new character that we have in this one is Bethan. So as Minna said, she was rescued by um, Cohen and by, incidentally, although not on purpose, by Rincewind and by Two Flower, uh, because she was slated to be the human sacrifice of the Druids as they were debugging their stone circle. Um, she is initially rather upset about being rescued. As she puts it, this, this was eight years of staying at home on Saturday evenings down the drain when she could be drinking mead with the moon goddesses right now. Uh, she eventually takes the adventure in life and takes a shine to uh, Cohen in particular. And by the end of the book, uh, the there's wedding bells in their future or whatever passes for wedding bells on the disc world. Wedding stoats, perhaps. Well, Rincewind, of course, we know from The Color of Magic. He is a failed wizard in that he has a spell in his head that is so scary that it has crowded every other spell out and he can't remember any. He's still pretty annoyed about this, and he mostly really just wants to, like... He's a cynic, and he mostly just, like, does not want to be in the adventuring life. Um, And he is a survivor in that he just somehow keeps living through things, mostly by running away. Uh, His first instinct, when danger calls, is to scream. Which, honestly, mood. (laughs) Um, And he starts to get real homesick throughout this book, too. Yeah, I think that... The the interesting thing that Rincewind gives us a window into is how they're going to characterize a lot of the wizards uh, later on in the series. Uh, this idea of primarily of them being academic and comfort-seeking and not really interested in upsetting the status quo. Um, uh, they very much read as, like... Uh, the, the very traditional view of, like, academia. Yeah, specifically, like, Oxford, Oxbridge-style academia. They're literally in their ivory tower. Yeah, <laughs> I was resisting saying that. Is the art tower made of ivory? Who it's knows? made of stuff. I'm sure ivory is a component if the wizards are academics, he's a dropout. He dropped out in his sophomore year. I feel like he's a dropout, but he's that sort of aspirational dropout who still views their life and school to be, like, the best time of their life. Yeah, it's real unfortunate. Poor buddy. He reads to me kind yeah. of like a doctoral student who finished with the terminal master's. <laughs> You're not wrong. Let's talk about Two Flower as well, especially in terms of the arc that Anna identified. Yeah, Minna brought up a interesting point about Rincewind, which is that by the end of Light Fantastic, he's he's getting pretty homesick, and the same can be said of Two Flower, that um, he's largely the same in that he he still looks at the world through a rose tinted brain. Um, he still kind of wants to see the best in everything and thinks the best of everything. But by the end, he wants to go home. And at the at the very end of the book, he does go home. He decides that the adventures have been wonderful and fun, but that one of the most important parts of going on an adventure is returning home again and being able to sit back by the fire and tell your friends about what happened and put the pictures drawn by your imp speed painter into a lovely binder and be able to reminisce. So there's, there's a bit of a parallel there in both of them having some homesickness. We see it through Rincewind's eyes as the POV character, but 
it's happening for two flower as well. It's almost as if they understand that they're inside of a um, inside of a hero cycle. <laughs> and it kind of reminded me as well as there's a trope in a lot of these books of the kind of epic journey. The most obvious being the Lord of the Rings, um, where the end of the cycle is that people return home. Frodo and the Hobbits return home. And so it kind of brings up the question here. It's not something that the book tackles, although it's something that we might see in the future, right, Aaron? Mm. Uh, the question of whether Two Flower was really able to ever go home again. Wait, wait, wait. He might not go home. Somebody heard of the sleep boy? Well, no, it's more the more the idea that you can return home in your body, but that your experiences shape you and that your perceptions of It's too no. far, Frodo. I mean, it's it's the fundamental component of the Campbellian monomyth. It's the idea that you return home changed. Yeah, it's it's like how mm-hmm. you know. I think the other perfect example of of the the Cambellian monomyth, at least in recent time, is Moana. Yeah, which, uh, you know, because she goes on an adventure and she follows the exact steps of the of the Cambellian hero cycle and and returns home changed and has and can't stay, has to leave. But that's a different podcast where Aaron talks about Disney princesses. I'm sorry. Can- I would I would listen I, to that podcast. I will pivot and change everything now. <laughs> but yes, we will in fact see both Two Flower and Rincewind again. Oh Rincewind yeah, Rincewind next Rincewind, I believe is in sorcery. I think so, sorcery. Yeah, and he might have cameo and equal rights. I can't remember. But I mean, he, that's what Pratchett does with a lot of these characters. They they will they will appear here and there. Yeah. They may not be featured, but yeah. And in fact, Galder Weatherwax is theoretically a distant relation of a character who will, who we will meet in Equal Rights. Yeah, who is exceedingly <laughs> I literally important. saw his name and I was like, any relation? He is supposed to be related. Yeah, I think that that's a, sort of an offhand comment at one point. Similar names are not coincidences in books like this i think also he just liked the name i mean for sure it's a good name um so should we do some favorites and least favorites so i liked that this unlike color of magic actually felt like a discworld book it's not quite there in that the plot is still kind of scattered um characterizations aren't quite what they're what they end up being later, but it's still heading in the right direction. There's a lot more, um, the characterizations are a lot truer to what we see later. And the humor is a lot more, uh, satire rather than parody at this point. And it's, it's heading in the right direction, even if it's not quite there yet. Um, so my favorite part of, I I think definitely my favorite part of, Light Fantastic is probably the same part as what I probably got the most out of Color of Magic, which was the characters. Um, like, I liked seeing Rincewind get to grow and have his arc of, like, becoming a reluctant hero in some way, shape, or form and facing uh, things. Up. Like, the book ends with... Rincewind taking charge of, uh, like, the last scene he is in is talking about him taking charge of, like, a crew helping to rebuild Unseen University. And it's, like, it's this weird thing where it's, like, he is a very self-interested person when we first meet him in Color of Magic, but now it's, like, oh, hey, I want to be doing something. I want to be making something, which is very interesting. It's it's a... It, it's definitely a... a thing that I like to see where he's going. And I'm interested to see where he will end up next, like from this point where we leave him off. Also, we get like our first sort of real villain in this book. Um, Tryman, who's a, he's a bureaucrat and I love bureaucrats as villains. He's just this, he's just this very like, 
he, he's somebody who's read the bylaws, recognized that there are some very big uh, loopholes that he could drive a cart through, and just like, you know, take power, consolidate power, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a scumbag. I love him. A, a phrase that will probably be repeated by me more than once. He's a scumbag. I love him. <laughs> oh, fuck. I can't wait for Moist. <laughs> anyway. Well, on your point with Rinspen, he has a lot of character development in this book and ends up mm-hmm. in such a different place from where we saw him at the start of Color of Magic, where... You know, he took that gold and bought the fastest horse he fucking could and was just out of there. Whereas here, at at the very end of Light Fantastic, Two Flower gives him the bag of gold to give to Cohen and Bethan as their wedding gift. And Rinsman fully intends, much to his surprise, to actually go through with it and give it to them. Yeah. That was really neat. Honestly, my favorite thing was also the characters, because actually I didn't really super connect with the characters in Color of Magic, but I think Light Fantastic finally made me actually connect with them. And it's really funny because it almost took towards the end for that. And I I think the thing that encapsulates that most is when... So, Rincewind falls off the spiral staircase inside the tower, in, like right after the whole showdown with Tryman, Truman, whatever. Um, and Two Flower is like, takes his hand to like, hold him up. He can't pull him up. But just like that moment where he's like, I almost want to read it out. Let me find it. <laughs> I think that whole sequence, but um, Two Flower recognized the signs. Rincewind was about to say something like, yes, I've got this itch on, my, on the back of my neck. You couldn't scratch it, could you, on your way past? Or, no, I enjoy hanging over bottomless drops. And he decided that he couldn't possibly face that. He spoke very quickly. Pull Rincewind back onto the stairs, he snapped. Rincewind deflated in mid-snarl. It's just that moan of, like, such familiarity that they've gained over this, where it's like, oh yeah, these people know each other, and we know them by now enough to get that joke. Yeah, that was a good scene. I feel like the addition mm-hmm. of Cohen scene, really. really helped with character building as well. It's that thing where you get someone new in and suddenly you have to explain yourself. You know, like these people, this, the things that you've started to take for granted, you have to explain to somebody else. Yeah. And then you get to show how much you know the other person by explaining them. <laughs> They sure didn't want to spend that long traveling together, but they sure did and got to know each other very well in that period. <laughs> I mean, when you nearly die with someone, you know, eight or nine times, you really get to know them. Yeah, I, I agree with Anna. It it really feels to me so much more like the Discworld that's in my head uh, in terms of how characters react to situations and um, how it flows and and also how Terry takes all these little indulgences uh, and sort of anti-colonial messages also. Somebody who knows more about uh, British literature of, of sort of the late 90s probably would be able to to go into this more in depth. But, you know, the, the bit that I liked was um, there's a there's a forest in Skund that's called Your Finger, You, f- you Fool, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, somebody pointing and saying, what's that? You know, or or Mount Ulskunrahad, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, a uh, mountain whose name translates to who is this fool who does not know what a mountain is. Uh, but it's, it's you know, this this idea that he plays with with Two Flower uh, and, you know, elsewhere in, in the series as well, of the idea of, you know, like how Two Flower uh, speaks louder and slower in his same language to people when there's a language gap. Um which is, you know, it's a it's a common trope in in at least British humor. It's often lampooned in, you know, like Monty Python and such. Yeah, I could definitely see Two Flower being in the the skit about the tiger. The other bit that I that I personally really like, in part because people keep discovering it on the uh, the men writing women subreddit. Um, 
uh-huh. where they're describing uh, w- w- this minor character uh, who... Uh, Herena the Henna Her- Herodin? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Terry, the hero, even at this moment, galloping towards the Vortex planes, didn't get involved in this kind of argument because they didn't take it seriously, but mainly because this particular hero was a heroine, a redheaded one. Now, there's a tendency at a point like this to look over one's shoulder at the cover artist and start going on at length about leather, thigh boots, and naked blades. Words like full, round, and even pert creep into the narrative until the writer has to go and have a cold shower and lie down. Which is all rather silly, because any woman sitting out to make a living by the sword isn't about to go around looking like something off the cover of the more advanced kind of lingerie catalog for the specialized buyer. I do at some point in this discussion want to kind of talk about the way that Pratchett approaches misogyny here, and also, like, the way that women kind of get brought into the narrative. Yeah, that was something, like, there's a couple lines, like, about Unseen University. Yeah. I yeah, think I have them highlighted. What's the, what's the one? There's also there's also one of my favorite jokes, just because it's a big it's a it's a big mood out of context. Um where Triman has taken over the unseen university, the the high counselor, whatever they are, and Triman explains that he has introduced an agenda. And Somebody replies, uh. and what does a gender do? <laughs> I wish I wish that question had been asked in more depth here. But it does probably get asked in more and depth. I was like, this is very valid. Uh, it actually comes up a little bit earlier. Um, Unseen University had never admitted women muttering something about problems with the plumbing, but the real reason was an unspoken dread that if women were allowed to mess around with magic, they would probably be embarrassingly good at it. And they are. Spoiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the Unseen... This does not endear... None of this endears Unseen University to me. Yeah. There's also this, like, ridiculous thing about wizards and fighters not getting on basically because they're both insulting each other's masculinity in some really fucked up ways but I don't, it's, it's hard to know how to approach these passages because i don't think like terry pratchett's like this is fine these things that these people are saying so these these are pl- clearly both both parties are being ridiculous it's just really ugh, kind of wearing to read sometimes <laughs> And what's interesting is, as a veteran of a male-dominated field in academia, it's that actually sort of ends up making the wizards more endearing in a way, in that I can see a lot of the stuff that I've encountered in my life reflected in them. And it's sort of... It's very appealing to see them be made fun of to the extent that they are. You know, you might say, you know, back in the back in the 80s, you know, there there were women in academia, but you know, there are still fields in academia where the a lot of these tropes still very much hold true to a degree that we all would rather they not be. And I think the thing that I'm wishing for that I'm almost certain we're getting next book, frankly, is to get past all of these jokes about these misogynistic men and get more fucking women in the narrative. Yeah. And like we have Herena and Bethan, but they're both still kind of occupying like, I think they almost have to be like the voices of reason without having much more to do than be the voices of reason against these ridiculous Yeah, and they're still, and both of them are definitely there just for Cohen's story. Yeah, they're both occupying, they're both, they're both characters who are occupying a man's narrative. And they kind of, like, the premises of both characters are kind of, I don't know, rooted in the same stuff that they're making fun of. Well, I think this is one of the things that perhaps hasn't aged as well about the book and something that we see change as the books go by is I think that 
Terry becomes more aware of his own blind spots with that, that I think, yeah. you know, he starts to, in Light Fantastic, engage consciously some of those sex stereotypes, but then he still sort of is falling into them himself, you know, in ways that aren't as obvious. And I definitely, I, from what I've read some later books and I know that this changes and there are, <laughs> I don't know, the women start to feel more full as characters and I'm just, I'm excited for that. Monstrous Regiment. <laughs> oh, that was my first Discworld Oh, beautiful. Book. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and the, you know, Waffles the, the entire Tiffany Aching series as well is, is I think a, a testament to what he learns so as another favorite detail of mine, I really liked the cosmic knickknack shop in <laughs> in the way where it was this hilarious parody of the experiences that one has in a you know kind of rundown tourist shop and. <laughs> Can I read you a note that captured my experience yes. on reading this? <laughs> I, I guess I was kind of fried at this point. Um, so at some point in this in this shop, Two Flower picks up like a a figurine of a cottage or something. It's I don't like remember. made Some of seashells. Of he says, "Yeah." He says, "I think it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." And my brain is like, "It's like a trap specifically baited for tourists." Yeah. Oh, like a tourist trap. <laughs> and that was just like literally my train of thought. Yeah. That was that was very good. And and just the things with like the shopkeeper describing how he was cursed and just the like somebody asked, Well, <laughs> how much is it co- going to cost? Well I think the thing just because death is one of my favorite characters uh i think the thing that's fascinating to me is you know thinking now reading this again about is two flower kind of a catalyst of change in the disc world uh as a whole um because you know introducing death to whatever that card game is I'm, you know, that's the first time that happens on screen uh, with with death, and death goes on to be really interested in all sorts of human stuff. Um, in in later books, sorry to spoil that. Um, and you know, he T- Two Flower also changes Rincewind, who then goes on to do different things. Two Flower changes Ankh-Morpork kind of dramatically but also not all that dramatically because it happens all the time um but the fire changes things a little i mean but it's not the first time that like Morpork has burned down it's not the last i don't think the fire is what two flower changed i think what two flower changes introducing things like in sewers right so yeah. it's sort of it's sort of this quantum thing where you know it's a, both a particle and a wave until you observe it, uh, and maybe this is going way too metaphysical. But you know, in these first two novels, we we start we as a as a whole start observing Discworld, and it starts to change. I think there's also something to be said for like the fact that this effect happens with the first tourist in the disc world and the way that like people coming in from the outside and objectifying a society and introducing new ideas into the society can change it. Mm -hmm. Like in some ways, I think you could say that there's, I don't want to say there's something like colonial about two flower, the person, but like there's that, that exoticizing gaze thing he has. And I think that, I don't know, there, there's something to be said for him as a metaphor. It's also, though, new ideas is a constant theme in all of Terry's Discworld books. 
you know, each, each one introduces a new idea and then says, you know, how does this change things now? Oh yeah. Like I think just, I, I mean, it's, it's a testament to how much it changes that I, I read some later books and then I went back to color of magic and I'm like, I literally don't recognize this city. <laughs> I just going back on two flower a little bit. I think there is a very specific term for what two flower is, which is a chaos agent. He's a catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. I think Rincewind actually does say it best. He says something like, "Once Rincewind looked at you, you were never the same." Once two flower. I mean, once two flower looked at you, you were never the same. Something like yeah. that. Towards the end. Well, it's it's an interesting parallel again with Cohen, in that. You know, there's the text that you pointed out, Aaron, of, um, you know, that that once you spent time with Cohen, you started seeing the world the way that he does, you know, big and simple and that something you want to be a part of. And Two Flower does the same thing. You spend time with Two Flower and you start to see the world like he does, which has its good aspects of you know, the refreshing lack of cynicism and has some negatives like, you know, the tendency to encounter and overcome a language barrier by talking loudly and slowly. It's interesting too. looking at, uh, we should, we should do a review at some point of the art of the various books because the, um, the Jack Kirby, um, Josh Kirby, excuse me, not Jack Kirby. Um, the the, jo- say. the the Josh Kirby art uh, on, <laughs> on the first couple of books is very um, different. I don't know if you can see that, but there's a lot of there's a lot of boobage where um, where Terry does not describe it and other things like that. Yes. Oh, I have quirky books uh, trade paperbacks, which bear no resemblance to the actual book. Which is funny because hilarious. that's actually something that Terry will, will lampoon a few times in, in text. The tendency of, of the covers to not at all look like the books. You know, the, the way he dips in and out of the narrative is, is fascinating to me. And we, we will probably go on at length in later books about all of his little footnotes and asides uh in text asides that sort of take you out of the narrative just long enough for you to sort of take a breath and then dive back in anna is this the cover you have yes that's the cover i have what the fuck is happening why does rincewind <laughs> look like that is that rincewind yes even? it's theoretically rincewind also there's theoretically cohen <laughs> and i guess theoretically Bethan. oh i don't see him i can't I think Cohen is oh, is hanging on to the luggage. I don't know if you can see that. And like trailing behind. Oh, but okay. I can do you see the librarian see there? That. I thought that was another troll. <laughs> oh, yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I was so glad to learn the librarian's origin story. Yeah, there's a there's so many characters that are teed up in this in this novel um, that go on to great things. Or sometimes very simple things. Yeah, I do. Th- uh, like coming out of the end of this, I really feel like it. Like it set a stage to like it. it basically set a that we've got a, we've got now a, a a setting to tell other stories in. Like we've bounced around just enough to know sort of the range of Discworld. Yeah. Like, that is definitely a feeling I have. Yeah, and we have at least sort of a broad framework for the um, for the cosmology, and we have at least some of the major players, and we have um, some, some big, juicy, loose threads that he's going to yank on really hard and then weave into a mattress. I don't know why I said mattress. Um, <laughs> that's that's a very interesting thing. That just it's fitting. 
I feel yeah. like it's apt though somehow. <laughs> I was like, that feels like a Terry Pratchett thing, but if you're doing yeah. Discworld, Chopped the metaphors and must be served with ketchup. Um, Not shaken. Yeah, there, there's a couple other bits that that he will. It, it was interesting seeing him set up uh, the troll silicaceous biology. Um, which doesn't really reappear, I don't think, for a couple more books. I have to say, it was I was very relieved to find trolls being actually like the trolls I expected. Yeah, the trolls were nice in this book, like relatively. They they yeah. just wanted to... trolls are very good. Yeah, the the trolls the trolls were trolls. Yeah. The trolls in the last book were like, what? What is this? Are they not like? I mean, we'll we'll get into that in guards. One? Also, buggy swires. Aaron, that, did he catch no. Buggy Swires? Buggy Swires, the the oh, like okay. gnome who is in the watch. I, He's I introduced in this part. book. Ah, <laughs> uh, wait, is that the one that hangs out with Cohen? Yes. And by hangs out, I mean runs under a table. I think so. Yeah, the the he's like the the little like gnome thing. Um, I'd have to look up exactly where it is, but he's introduced in this book. Cohen runs over the top of a table and he runs underneath at the same time. Possibly. I, I forget. It might have also like been in whole, like the Rincewind Forest scene. The like little tiny critter who in in the watch books, um, he like rides hawks. An albatross or something at one point, right? Um Yeah. Yeah. Um so this is just a, a random thought because of a page that I just random skip, randomly skipped to, but I was also listening to uh, James D'Amato and Patrick Rothfuss's discussion today about magic, uh, and it was interesting thinking about it in the context of of what we see of magic in, in Discworld, uh, looking at the druidic magic uh, versus the mages or the wizard's magic and things like that. Uh, and I mean, we we don't get into witch magic yet, but that's coming very soon. Yes. But you know, this idea of like systemic scientific magic versus uh, versus folk magic, I, I think it is a, a theme that we will see again and again. Yeah, I'm very interested to see the difference. It's funny because, like, even though like quote unquote scientific magic just takes on a life of its own in this book, which I thought was very interesting. I'm really into, like, when things just get <laughs> fucking weird. Justin, I think that the the druids particularly appealed to you, right? Um, yes, the <laughs> the druidic uh, computer uh, was rather humorous. Um, I am in, in my real-life job, I, I, I work in the the realm of technical support and yes no there, there's this point where it's so real you can only laugh at it where oh no we can just try turning it off and on again no this is the way we've always done things this is how it's programmed yada oh. the druids the druids were very fun <laughs> isn't there a point where they're like it can't be a problem with the hardware. It has to be a problem with the software. Or like the software was built for this. It can't be a problem Ugh. with the software. It's the world that's wrong. I, I, I it's the world that's I wrong. It, I like, I shit you not. I have heard in my life, like, no, this, no, the software is right. It's the, or it's just like, it's the software is right. It's just that the people aren't using it right. Right. It's, it's Pebcac, right? <laughs> Problem oh, yeah. exists between chair and keyboard. Yeah, except they're using it. You know, it's it's one of those things. Are just like no, it, 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 yeah. Oh god. But uh, but similarly, the the um the the when Two Flower you know is observing this the ceremony that is about to take place with um with the the virgin sacrifice, he he says you know can't they just use flowers and berries and things? He said sort of symbolic. And <laughs> Rincewin says, nope. Has anyone ever tried? 
Well, and that actually comes back with the wizards, too, because there's the um, the younger, more modern wizards who, you know, are like, you know, all you need is three matches and two cc's of mouse blood. Oh. Um, whereas the older wizards, you know, have the big ritual and everything. And so there's this weird drive toward modernization within Unseen University itself that we start to see in this one. Yeah. Uh, doesn't Truman literally, like, turn, like, this elaborate meeting room into basically a conference room with shitty leather chairs in it? Yep. I, I do appreciate how, like, just, like, boring Tryman just makes wizards, or, like, attempts to. Just, like, we don't need the pomp and circumstance in it. We're gonna just make this like efficient. Well, I'll, I'll be interested to see your read on Red Color when we get to him. Okay, okay. I'll have to remember who that is. He appears in sorcery, right? I, th- I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Is this Arch Chancellor? Yeah. Yeah. Red Color. Um, can we talk about death? Sure. I can always talk about death. Yeah, so we we gotta stop by death's. Ugh, can we talk about death? Sorry, no, I can't do I can't do goth. I'm the least goth person who exists. I mean, same. I think we're uh, no no. Anna Anna's like the Anna is like the overcompensated goth for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'm not. I'm not really. That's just my aesthetic. Yes. <laughs> um. But yeah, we we get to we get to meet Death. We get to go to his house. Um. He's got a daughter. Yes, is, he does. Which is really interesting. And she'll come back in Mort. I'm really glad to hear that. You because know, right. Okay, I was down for like death having like weird kooky adventures but death being a single dad with weird kooky adventures is just amazing i just want i want to think of her childhood now with death trying to figure out what you do with a human child and okay okay i i really now just have this entire thing now as death like death as like i'm a cool dad Okay, but really, really seriously, don't think about it too hard. Just let Mort happen to you. Okay, okay. Listen, listen. I just know that that, that death death has a right-on lawnmower, and nobody can take this from me. Well, Uh, death has... So in Mort, in Mort, he gets an intern. Wait, also, Death cannot possibly have a ride on Lawnmower. He has not upgraded. He specifically is the one Death that still uses a scythe instead of a combine. Oh, Death just gets better and better, honestly. Yeah. Just wait until Hogfather, which is my personal favorite. Or Soul Music. Fuck yeah, Soul Music. Is Soul Music just Death joins a band? You know, no, no, I don't want to know now. No, seriously, just let death happen to you. <laughs> wow, big mood. <laughs> I just, can we also, has anybody seen, uh, like, the Pokemon anime, the, the first season or so? I mean, a very long time 18 ago. 18 years ago. Sabrina? Do you remember Sabrina? Fake. The creepy ass, like Ash gets stuck in the psychic oh. or ghost oh, leader's yeah. gym. I think it's the psychic leader's gym. <sighs> and she basically treats him as a doll and she's like, stay here and play with me. That's Isabel oh, no. in my head. I mean, you're not you're wrong. Not wrong. <laughs> it's interesting seeing Death's abode for the first time. Color of Magic, he's kind of just sort of a jerk who has it out for Rincewind, it seems like. But in, in, in Light Fantastic, he's definitely his own character. For sure. I mean, he shows up when the cult is sort of rampaging around, just sort of like, what's going on? I just like how, like, Death shows up to the apocalypse 
15 minutes late with Starbucks. And the cult itself, I honestly really love that this, the whole doomsday cult trope and the idea that, you know, we've got the end of the world and here's all these people who are making it worse in this misguided attempt to make it better is something I love in general. I love that it's it's Ankh-Morphork. There's a crisis. They've found somebody ridiculous to follow and just gone all in. I've, I've seen this happen in another book, at least one. I mean, it's it's a grand tradition in Ankh-Morphork. It's, it's just the go-to. Yeah, just the, the tradition of, like, ridiculous... The, the mob doing something ridiculous. It is an uncertain world, and somebody seems certain enough. <laughs> One more thing that I wanted to talk about with this book in particular is that so Color of Magic had a glimpse of cosmic horror in the temple of four times two or seven plus one, however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. And we start to see that again with the more fully fleshed out dungeon dimension creatures and there's actually one of my favorite passages from this is in that confrontation between Rinswin and Triman, where Triman's been taken over by the dungeon dimension creatures. And it's honestly really legitimate, very good horror that mm-hmm. here I'll, I'll, I can read this out actually. Triman had tried to contain the seven spells in his mind and it had broken, and the dungeon dimensions had found their hole all right. Silly to have imagined that the things would have come marching out of a sort of rip in the sky, waving mandibles and tentacles. That was old-fashioned stuff, far too risky. Even nameless terrors learned to move with the times. All they really needed to enter was one head. His eyes were empty holes. Knowledge speared into Rincewind's mind like a knife of ice. The dungeon dimensions would be a playgroup compared to what the things could do in a universe of order. People were craving order, and order they would get, the order of the turning screw, the immutable law of straight lines and numbers. They would beg for the harrow. Triman was looking at him. Something was looking at him, and still the others hadn't noticed. Could he even explain it? Triman looked the same as he had always done, except for the eyes and a slight sheen to his skin. Rincewind stared and knew that there were far worse things than evil. That was so good, yeah. I was like riveted during that part. It is such a good, good uh, phrase or, or passage. Um, so in a universe of order... Do you think that they're talking about the Discworld universe or the universe that Truman wants to make? Yes. I think that the Discworld <laughs> is a universe of order compared to yeah. the Dungeon Dimensions. But then also this is with the Star Cult who are trying to impose additional order right at this very moment. But just that that thing of... that. All they needed was one head, one mind to enter. And that concept of Rincewind being able to look at him and see in his heart that Triman is wrong, but then not seeing anything physically different is just like the sort of horror that I absolutely adore, as Justin knows very well. Yeah, and you know, this is, I think, uh, an example of of the type of narrative commentary that you'll see in certain places throughout all of these books. You will have these moments of, okay, we've been having some goofs, but here's what this is all about. I mean, you'll you'll see that with Carrot at the end of Guards, and uh, a couple other times too that I can think of just off the top of my head. It's indicative of like how how well like I, I think it's the reason that that i really do enjoy the discworld books they're not just all of like the the parody and the fun and the humor he can write some like really compelling shit that like anchors it and like 
I think that really came through in this one with like the 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 star slowly approaching and like that kind of like dread that kind of kept just showing up every now and then as these wacky adventures happened. And I, I think that's something that, that we're finally getting to see more of. Yeah. He he obviously read a bunch of uh of the sort of post Lovecraftian horror cosmic horror as opposed to, you know, slasher horror. Yeah, that yeah. there's definitely like that tinge of cosmic horror there, which was really which was really compelling. I, I super dig that that sort of subset of horror. And you're actually going to be real excited for equal rights because that particular brand of cosmic horror pops up again there. Excellent. Uh, should we do our ratings? Sure. Yes. All right. Six out of eight great spells. Oh, good one. I would give this book three and a half out of five red stars of doom. I would give it six out of eight cultists. I um, will admit that um, I, I, I think that this book sort of had the same problem for me that Color of Magic's last two thirds did, where it's doing a lot of scattershot stuff. And there's just I like a little bit more of a spine. Mm-hmm. I personally give it three out of four and a half questionably acquired troll teeth. Yeah, as as we've talked about, this is the second book. It's closer to what Anna and I really think of as Discworld. It's not there yet. Uh, it's still really good. I think there's some some passages in particular that I personally think to have stood the test of time. It really firmly establishes a lot of stuff that is critical to later Discworld novels. Yeah, it's the second book, so sophomore, not slump. And as a direct sequel that improves on the original, that's that's honestly pretty rare. It definitely felt more solid. It's getting there. It's just not quite there yet. Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at atuinpod which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.